welcome to the We're Doing It Wrong podcast, a production of WDIW Media, hosted by Joseph Pizar and inspired by David Michael Slater's book, We're Doing It Wrong, 25 Ideas in Education That Just Don't Work and How to Fix Them. This may be the last episode from We're Doing It Wrong. I certainly reserve the right to go back on that and release more episodes if I'm completely captivated by some work in education and I just can't help myself. But this has been an amazing journey. I can't not thank you all enough, all those of you who have come on board to become our audience and support our work. Uh, every subscription and uh, you know note of encouragement that you've sent or ideas that you've sent us have just all been amazing. And then uh, this journey, this podcast journey, has given me this wonderful excuse to speak to some of the most interesting people doing innovative work in the field of education. So I'm extremely grateful. Uh, so expect, if not this to be the last episode, for there to be at least another long uh, break between episodes. Again, I've got to leave that door open just in case something catches our eye and we just can't help ourselves and we decide to do another series of episodes. But for the time being, this will be our last one. And with who better to do our final episode than with Dr. Linda Nathan? I, I was not familiar with Dr. Nathan's work until uh, we sort of ran into each other online for this podcast, and it's some pretty exciting stuff. And so Dr. Nathan is the first executive director of the Center for Artistry and Scholarship. In this role, Dr. Nathan is responsible for working with the uh, board to develop the nonprofit strategies, goals, and areas of focus. Dr. Nathan also works closely with the leadership of Conservatory Lab Charter School to support its development as a national model of project-based learning and arts-immersed education. The uh, reason we found Dr. Nathan was her latest book, When Grit is Not Enough, and I think you'll find her perspective extremely valuable. Uh, I know I did. And so we talked quite a bit about her books, including The Hardest Questions Aren't on the Test, uh, and again, uh, When Grit Isn't Enough. And near the end of our conversation, she reads a short excerpt from her latest book. Again, that's When Grit Isn't Enough. And I was quite moved by uh, some of the stories that she relays, um, some from the book and then, and then some from, uh, I think, just in conversation here today in this podcast. So what a great conversation to end this with. And again, thank you all for listening. So without further ado, I bring you Dr. Linda Nathan. I am here with Dr. Linda Nathan. Dr. Nathan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're welcome. So I wanted to begin just by asking you to share a little bit about your educational story. How did you come to be doing the work you're doing now? Yeah. Um, well, I worked for the Boston Public Schools for almost 40 years. Uh, I began as a bilingual teacher, and then I was a school leader. Um, well, first I founded uh, as a teacher leader an amazing little middle school for the arts back in the 80s, and then I became a school leader of Fenway High School, which in that era, in the mid-80s, was called an alternative school. And I did a lot of work with Fenway, helping it to sort of take a leadership role in what was then called the school-to-career movement. And I was with Fenway for 14 years as its co-director. And um, then I founded the Boston Arts Academy, which was the first uh, high School for the Visual and Performing Arts in Boston. And um, now I run a little nonprofit. And then I worked for the superintendent doing some work on autonomy. And then I retired 
And now I run a little nonprofit that works to support schools that want to have creativity and arts making at their core. And I also support a, a little charter school called Conservatory Lab where kids are doing orchestral music and music composition every single day. It's a elementary school. It's a pretty extraordinary place. And I run a leadership institute called the Perone Sizer Institute for Creative Leadership. And your listeners may know the names of Vito Perone and Ted Sizer. I consider them 20th century philosophers. They were mentors of mine. And so I run the Perone Sizer Institute for Creative Leadership because I so believe in their work and the books they wrote. And it was actually Vito who said to me, it's not that um, someone else will write your story, it's that no one will. So you better learn to write. <laughs> yeah, I think you may have a very idiosyncratic definition of the word retirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what my kids tell me. Yeah, they, they keep saying, Mom, we went to your retirement party. Like, what's that all about? Yeah, I mean, I have one other, I, I like creating things and, you know, having been a school principal for so many years, um, you know, you get in my world, I got to be extremely creative as a school principal. So I didn't want to work anymore running a school. I didn't want to do buses and, you know, parents and I love parents, but I didn't want to have to worry about them and kids. And, you know, I wanted to be able to see my grandchildren. So yeah, I think running a nonprofit that's associated very deeply with the school where I get to support the principal, but I don't have to be the principal. It's a pretty good deal. And I get to run this wonderful leadership institute so I can try to educate the next generation of creative leaders. Well, thank you. And, and you're the author of, of two inspiring books, uh, When Grit Isn't Enough and The Hardest Questions Aren't on the Test. And we'll definitely put for our listeners links to both of those in the episode description. I'm wondering, um, just speaking maybe to your, a little bit more towards your first book, what, well, let me ask you this way, is public education as it now stands in the United States uh, an equalizing force? Yeah, um, well, it has to be, you know, I have to see the glass is half full, right? Um, I consider myself still a public school educator, even though I'm not teaching kids anymore. I'm teaching adults to teach kids. Um, and I have to see the glasses half full. So I have to answer that question is yes, um, because we must get there. Um, however, as I think your listeners will understand, public education itself cannot be the equalizer. We have to grapple as educators with systemic oppression and racism and the fact that uh, we have a society where there are haves and have-nots and education of course can help that on the individual level but we haven't yet decided as a country that education must be an equalizer it, it happens on an individual level but you know i'm a, a reader of michael harrington and we we live in a capitalist society where some will get it, the it being the slice of the pie that's bigger, and some will not. And we can do our best as teachers in classrooms and even as school leaders in schools to change that. Um, 
but lots more has to change in our society. I mean, we all, I think, are living right now in a time where the rich are only getting richer and the poor only getting poorer. But that doesn't lead me to say education doesn't matter. How then beyond just the, I guess, the most obvious that we're providing a hopefully what would be a free and appropriate public education for for students across the country beyond just providing um, education how how in its most basic sense how as a system of public schools do you see um, us growing and doing better on this front of providing more opportunity for students from every background what are the major components that, or maybe even just one, um, feel free to elaborate as, as much as you prefer, uh, uh, in terms of the direction we need to be heading. And then, so I'm going to try to refine this question a bit. What direction should we be heading in? And then are we currently yeah. heading in that direction? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, I think we have to trust our teachers. And I know, you know, that sounds like a Pollyanna-ish response, but, you know, I studied to be a teacher. You probably studied to be a teacher. And um, we have to believe that our teachers know their craft. And, you know, we've, we've gotten so crazy in this country about high stakes testing, um, as if that is a panacea, as if we just test our students to equality and nothing could be further from the truth. So, so I think the way we, continue to have a robust public education system is by ensuring that the best and the brightest of us go into teaching, not just because we love kids or love our content, but because we love the idea of helping to educate young people to equalize the playing field, to ask those hard questions about inequity, about racism, about um, social class about oppression like that's we want our teachers to be able to engage in really difficult questions with kids about history um, so I I am so excited whenever I'm with a group of young teachers who are just starting out because they always make me feel like the world is a better place and then I get really nervous when I you know, and confronted with the state policies, the federal policies that rank and sort our kids just based on test scores. So um, the only good thing, there's nothing good that's going to come out of Trump or Betsy DeVos, uh, but they actually <laughs> don't believe so much in testing, so as far as I can tell. Uh, so that may be a good thing. Betsy DeVos actually may believe a little more in career and technical education. So that could be a good thing because I really do believe in that. Um, so I, I guess where I want things to go in public education, I want the unions to continue to grow strong. I think, um, I don't know if you're in a uh, union state or not, but I know, you know, the charters grew and I work with a charter now that's not unionized. It actually had been unionized at one point, which is sort of interesting. The charters in this country grew up to answer a need, to answer a need about choice, to answer a need about more democratic schools, about decisions being made closer to the classroom. But that's not actually what the charter movement has been. I mean, there are some independent charter schools in this country, and I happen to work with one that I'm very proud of. But for the most part, 
and that's conservatory lab where I was telling you earlier, the kids all do music every day, every day, just like they do math. Um, but there are so many sort of chains that have, you know, brought what I think of, I, I, I think of almost sort of militarization to our young people, particularly to poor young people, kids, you know, born in, um, what I might call undernourished, you know, uh, communities that, that have a lot of poverty and a lot of black and brown families and kids. And I tend to see, and I write about that and when grid isn't enough. And that's kind of the thesis that I'm putting forward is you cannot just tell kids to be gritty, which is what a lot of these no excuses schools do and expect the world to change. That just, that is irrational. It's kind of stupid and it's completely ignorant of history. So I worry about those kind of charter management organizations having a lot of power. Um, I worry about schools where teachers are working from seven in the morning to 7 p.m. because that's actually their contract and there is no union representation. Um, I worry about schools where teachers are turning over every two years because it takes eight years to be a good teacher. I don't know what year you're in, but I know it's my eighth eight. year. There you go. You I'm can call kidding. yourself a good teacher. Yeah. I, I, what, I could agree with that. To, yeah. It takes three years to even figure out what you're doing. And then it takes three more years to kind of get better at it. So now you're year six. So you're seven. Like you're like, Oh my goodness, I think I got this down. And then you're eight. You could actually say, I know what I'm doing. Yeah, there's there's a lot less agony over small decisions, but I will say there's still there's still moments where I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> what do you teach? Uh, math. So I know the math well, but um, you know, it's just teaching's infinitely complex because you're dealing with so many different humans with so many different needs and you're and your resources are even complex. There's so much available. So how do you filter that in the short amount of time? You know, I guess I don't need to d dive into it. You you speak of teacher turnover uh, and, and retention as, um, you know, an issue and, and a goal. That is, we want to retain teachers mm -hmm. and we, we don't want uh, teachers leaving the profession in the, in the large numbers they do. And that's been a focus of, I guess, the We're Doing It Wrong podcast and, and even um, the website for quite some time. So I, I have to ask you why beyond maybe some of the obvious of like teachers don't make a lot of money. Why um, do teachers tend to flee the profession? Uh, and, and there's some dispute over the numbers, the percentage uh, that leave, mm -hmm. let's say before year five, but uh, what's indisputable is it's a high number. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're working in a no excuses kind of uh, pedagogy where it's very scripted curriculum and, you know, where it's all about test scores. Um, I think that's a really, I think you have to be, you know, a very certain kind of individual to work in that, um, kind of, um, environment. I, I describe some of those kinds of schools in when grid isn't enough. I sort of go into one of those no excuses, excuse me, schools and talk about those. So I think, if you're not a deep convert believer in that philosophy and you're in one of those schools, it'd be very hard to stay. I think um, teachers leave sometimes because, you know, if you're teaching 
you know, this is what Ted Sizer wrote about in the early 80s. Teachers should teach, he was talking about secondary teachers, no more than 80 kids. Mm. Uh, you know, that number was for him sacrosanct. And, you know, maybe he could do 100, but, you That's know. That's unheard what? of. Like 80 kids, know, what are you talking I about? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? But he was saying, you know, that's certainly what we do in private schools. So we know that having a small load matters because how do you as a math teacher correct all those problem sets? How do you, what, what grade do you teach? High school? Uh, I'm middle. So I'm teaching this year um, sixth and eighth grade. So I'm skipping seventh for some odd reason. So <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, so I think teachers leave because the enormity of the job it's just too much. I think teachers leave because they don't feel that they have autonomy over developing their own curriculum. They may leave because they don't have skills to develop their curriculum. I was a math teacher too. Um, I actually think math teachers can change the world because they understand how to schedule. And so I always want to talk to the math teachers first in any school. I think they tend to be the most, they are both the most in the box thinkers and out of the box thinkers. <laughs> and so I really think that we're only going to change our schools when the math teachers all get together and say this could be different. But I think teachers leave also because, so as a math teacher, I became pretty convinced that the way we do math, you know, this sort of layer cake way of teaching, I got to go to Denmark and look at how math teachers were teaching there. And it was so different. And then I wanted it to be different here. But I didn't have the autonomy as an individual teacher to say, let's really do this differently. It was actually one of the reasons I became a principal, because I wanted to have more autonomy to give my teachers the chance to develop their own way of developing curriculum. But that's, to me, why teachers go into teaching, is to also develop curriculum, not just to have a textbook and do what it says. So I, I think it's the numbers of people in their days that make it almost incomprehensible to the outside world. I think it's the kinds of pressures teachers are under today to do so much um, um, work also with kids' social-emotional health, and nothing is taken away. Like, I do think teachers should be advisors um, for kids. You can't be a good advisor and have 30 kids. You know, I hear about schools that have advisory with 30 kids, and I'm like, how can you be advising? You can't have more than 10 or 12. So we, we can get this right. Most schools that I go into, if you do the number of adults, number of kids divided by number of adults, you actually would get 12 to 1. Um, but we don't ask everyone to be an advisor. You know, there's some people who won't be in front of kids. But why is that? So I, I, I have great hope that we could dramatically change um, the way we're doing things. And as I said at the beginning, I take great inspiration from, you know, Vito's work, A Letter to Teachers, and Ted Sizer's work, Horace's Compromise, Horace's School, Horace's Hope. I think these are still the books we need to read um, to understand that it can be different. They were writing in the 80s and 90s that many years ago, but their ideas are still the right ones. You know, I think of teaching as a little bit of a contagion. There are certain people that when they when they catch the bug, they just they can't get away from it. And it's just something that, especially for uh, any teachers out there who may be you know, feeling discouraged in the moment, 
you just got to get back to that moment and those things that made you made you love the job in the first place. And I think the things you describe are almost perfectly designed to attack some of the core reasons teachers love the job to feel like you're making a difference. And, and you bring up the point of numbers and, and I, it's so obvious, but it's, it's never at the top of my mind, but now, it, now I'm convinced it should be that when you're dealing with 160 plus students, it just exceeds what the mind can handle in some ways and you want to make a difference. And so if you're seeing yourself fail by your own standards repeatedly, it's, there's nothing more, um, I guess, disillusioning for folks. So, uh, definitely yeah. setting, setting people up for success. And I think that's something that uh, you get at in, in your uh, latest book, which I have not had a chance to fully read. Um, but it, it appears to be a deep dive into, you know, this successful school. And you talk about how schools need to sort of uh, ask the right questions. So let me just put this simply like, what kind of questions do schools need to be asking for their students and, and for their work? So in my first book, that's the book that's really the deep dive about one particular school, the school that I founded. And in that book, I really do ask, um, you know, does your school have uh, an overarching framework? Can you define what your school stands for? Can everyone define it? And there's a chapter in that book about what happens when schools develop shared values and you know not just the things on the walls but really develop them deeply and in that book i ask you know what what makes great teachers and what are the risks and rewards of transforming a faculty into a real professional learning community i ask in that book about how discussions of race and achievement are taken on by a healthy professional learning community so i in this book, I'm very proud of. It was, you know, written in 2009. It came out, and I was so proud of what the Boston Arts Academy had accomplished. I continue to be proud. That, and I wrote this book, I think, in large part for teachers and principals. But then, when I stepped down from the leadership of the Boston Arts Academy, the um, incoming headmaster, we call principals headmasters, asked me to, um, I said, what can I do, you know, in this interim period where I'm still sort of hanging around, but I'm not in charge and you're in charge, how can I support you? She said, just start doing some interviews with alums, you know, cause now the school was 15, 17 years old. And yeah, 1998, yeah, it's about 15, 16 years old. You know, tell, find out what's happened to our kids. And, you know, we sort of knew um, that we had very strong college going rate and for an urban school, you know, to send, we had 98% of our kids, you know, applying and getting into college. And we had 68% finishing college in six years or less. And that's just unheard of in an urban school, like 68%. Oh my God, people say to me, but I didn't think that was good enough. I wanted to know what had happened to the third that had not gone to college or had not graduated, um, what had happened to them? So that's, I sort of went off to ask that question, you know, what about the kids that haven't graduated? And I interviewed or, or have dropped out. So I interviewed about 90 students that um, 
had had gone to Boston Arts Academy and had finished because I, I wanted to understand what had happened to them. In the hardest questions, I talk about a valedictorian that I call Shanita, and Shanita got into her dream college and never went, and she got a full scholarship and never went. She never went. We found out as we unraveled the story because she didn't have the money for the deposit. And perhaps she didn't have the money for the deposit because she, you know, was too embarrassed to ask us for that kind of help, you know, culture, lack of cultural capital, you know, whatever the story, the reason was, the fact remained, Shanita didn't go to college because she didn't have money for the deposit. And there was nothing I could do in that moment. I tried to get to Shanita, get her to college. So I, I really, that, that deeply affected me, that story. And it, it's the touchstone for this new book. And so as I began interviewing these 80, 90 alums of mine, you know, I didn't think I was going to write a book. I thought I was just going to, you know, find out what they were doing. But what came out of it is this deep anger about how we think it's the responsibility of the most vulnerable amongst us to redistribute opportunities for access. You know, it's just not true. So, so this book explores what I call five um, myths, um, assumptions, because every year I would say to my 125 freshmen, all of you will go on to college or a career. And that's still the right promise to make, but maybe my emphasis, or sometimes I say my emphasis was wrong. So, so the five assumptions or myths or themes that the book, this new book, When Grid Isn't Enough, is organized around, and you have to sort of imagine air quotes. Money isn't an obstacle, so imagine air quotes. Race doesn't matter. Just work harder. College is for everyone if you believe your dreams will come true. And so, you know, in these chapters, I think I, I'm, I'm really asking this question about the assumption of social inequities that we assume that those can be overcome just by personal grit and hard work. And, and I'm trying to say, this book, no, that's just not true. Um, and so I, you know, I could talk to you. I, I don't know if you want to get into some of the actual stories in the book, um, if you wanted me to read one of them. But I, I, I wrote this book. I mean, this book sort of wrote itself in some ways as I did all these interviews. And um, I really began to challenge assumptions, even my own, even my own assumptions. Yeah, definitely. I, I'd love to uh, hear some of the the poignant points from the book. And I just wanted to ask you, could you have written When Grit Isn't Enough if you hadn't done the that first process of your of your initial book? Or did that no, process probably not. really probably not. You know, Yeah. Did it, did it kind of formulate your your views? Yeah, I mean I think, you know, listen, I I'm a I'm a teacher and a principal, right? And I I think as I said to you, Vito Perone was the one who said to me, you gotta write. And um, I don't, you know, you're too busy in your daily life to write. I'm so impressed that you're doing this podcast. Um, so, 
Yeah, I think it was in writing that first book that I realized, you know, and I say this with tons of humility because I don't want your readers, I don't think I'm all that by any means, but I realized I, I, I could tell young people's stories in ways that the reader could really read and, and I could, I could tell them very respectfully. Um, and so I really enjoyed doing that. And my alums who read my second book, um, you know, I got a really beautiful call from one of them who didn't finish college. And she said to me, thank you for giving voice to what I've always felt. You know, it's not me and it's the system. Um, So that made me feel really good. I've gotten a lot of really good feedback on the second book in ways that the first book, because the first book was so much about one individual school. And this second book is really about systemic issues. And I've gotten a lot of invitations to speak to colleges because, you know, a lot of what I take on and describe in this book, all of the stories are about what happens after high school. And so colleges have asked me to come and do talks and, you know, talk to their success offices or their financial aid and even with their students in the room about how could we do things differently. So that's made me feel really good. I think the second book has had a little further, you know, broader reach. I hope so. Yeah. And I was, I'm very curious about your um, views on college isn't for everyone. So uh, that's perhaps uh, in opposition to maybe a norm that was more solidly in place a decade ago, maybe. Uh, I wouldn't want to put too much of a time frame on it, but I, I have sensed a, a move away uh, from that notion. And I'm wondering what's informed your views on that and, and really what your views are. Yeah. Well, you know, so again, it's with air quotes, right? So I still would say to my freshmen, if I were leading the school, all of you will go on to college. Um, but I would say the emphasis much differently. All of you will go on and have a career, and college may be the way you get there. Um, but for some, and everyone I think, you know, needs some kind of post-high school, post-secondary something. But one of the things that I really did a lot of research on in the book was looking at career and technical education, both in this country and in Europe. And I feel so strongly that we must not throw out the baby with the bathwater, and that we must give kids more opportunities for career and technical uh, exposure, you know, and, and that should start in middle schools. You know, the fact that middle schools no longer have shop, for example, that's really problematic because that means kids aren't doing and making with their hands. And for many kids, doing and making is not just an academic or analytic task. Of course, I, everyone, has to know, you know, basic math and how to read. These are skills that we need no matter what. But I think kids starting as young as you can need to know how to play a musical instrument, need to have explored what music can do for, you know, all parts of you, your soul, your heart, your brain, you know, all of you. I think kids need deep exposure to visual arts, to learn how to work with a camera, to sculpt, to use clay. So these are ways that kids, I think kids need to know how to fix a tire, fix a car, uh, to understand how a computer works. You know, so I, I worry terribly 
that because what we're, what you test is what matters. And we test English and history. And I'm not saying we should test the arts or we should test science or we should test any of that. I think let's keep it with English and history, excuse me, English and math. Let's let that be our basis. But then let's develop curriculum that really stretches kids outside the school walls. So I'm very encouraged by any state that really thinks about extended learning opportunities for kids outside of the classroom. So what does it look like for kids, for example, to think about issues in their community, how to research those issues, how to solve those issues, how to bring those issues to the city council, for example, and really think about how you pass legislation to ensure that we're cleaning up that muddy river or that we are building a statue for that African-American, you know, in Boston, the kids at Conservatory Lab really worked at building, uh, bringing a monument to the Boston Common for Frederick Douglass. There's no monument for Frederick Douglass. And he did a lot in Boston. So through their own research, the kids thought about that. So I'm, I'm very interested in an education that allows kids to not just do what I call seat work and to mm-hmm. really make do and create. And good career and technical education is all about that. Yeah, you know, I've, I've often thought that if one was to design a system of public schools as though one had never existed, and yeah. if, if the people doing this were folks knowledgeable, professionally knowledgeable and child development, I think the outcome right. would be quite just almost um, uh, shockingly different than what we currently have. And so I'm infinitely fascinated with, you know, the, the innovations uh, folks are are doing in, ed- in education and, and the, the schools that you've started and, and the very uh, charter schools around. But I'm, I'm wondering if the idea that one needs to start a charter school just to have permission to do certain innovative things, if that's not indicative of a problem in and of itself. Oh, well, that I totally agree. I mean, I don't want it to be that we all have to go start charter schools. I mean, not at all. I, I was very proud that the schools I started were district public schools. They had a lot of autonomy. They were called pilot schools. I had hoped that that pilot movement would take off across the country. It didn't. Um, and so, you know, we got charter schools because people were so desperate for innovation. But I really believe, as you just said, if we can't figure out how to deeply do innovation in our school districts, you know, I, I'm not going to say we're going to lose public education because we're not, because the suburbs are working great. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, it's our urban districts where you know, we have such diversity of kids, right? We have kids, you know, in some schools that are speaking 29 different languages, some, you know, who just, you know, came to this country yesterday, literally. Um, you know, we have so many different things going on in those schools. So because of the diversity of our population, we ought to be able to really do some innovative things. But, you know, our public schools, for the most part, 
um, have no money. You know, it's really problematic because, you know, how do you get class size down to 15? How do you get a teacher's aid in every class? So if you've got a class of 25, there will be two teachers in there, you know, and not just for two hours a day um, and not just for the special ed kids, but for everybody, because we ought to say that's what we value. And how come all of our urban public schools don't have well-stocked libraries or gyms or many, many art offerings. I'm going to keep coming back to that because we say as Americans that we value the arts. And I can almost guarantee you that if you go to school in urban America, you will not get an art class. You will never dance. You will never work with clay or paints. And you will definitely not play a violin or a saxophone. And you probably won't do live theater. Uh, and that to me, if we believe that kids are to be the change agents for tomorrow and that they need to be educated as to how you uphold such a fragile democracy, if they don't have opportunities to play with each other, to make with each other, to struggle with each other, and you do that, you can do that in math class. You can do it in English, you can do it in history, but you absolutely have to do it when you're putting on a play. You can't do a play, but you know, you can't, you, you, you have to figure out that collaborative stuff. And we don't give kids enough experiences in that. So what I love about seeing kids in music ensembles or in dance ensembles or anything, chorus, is that they're, first of all, they're learning another language. And second of all, they're learning to work together. And we don't give kids those opportunities. We give them assignments and we say they're due at the end of the week or they're due it tomorrow. But we don't say to kids, I want you to work with me to put on this play. And there's going to be a real audience judging how you do. Not me, the teacher, but how that audience responds to you. That is so powerful. And I know it works because I've run a lot of schools like that. Uh, and I see what happens to kids when they're fighting with their flutes as opposed to their fists. I couldn't agree more. I would encourage every adult listening to think back to the most influential and positive uh, experience you had in school and during your schooling years. And I think there's a high probability those experiences are of the kind you describe. I know for myself, uh, there was this silly mock election that I ran in and it was, you know, just looking back, I thought, gosh, how much did I learn from that? Why do I know? Why did I know so much about the electoral college, even though I, you know, uh, had really no interest in, in history while in college um, and, and down to some minutia. And I thought back to that experience. I thought, well, that's why there was like no forgetting it. I lived an experience and uh, I, I just couldn't, couldn't agree more that that might be one of the biggest inequities when we see entire school districts that just aren't able to offer certain experiences of that kind to their students. And um, you you mentioned that a lot of these uh, concerns are are centered in in urban districts, and you you mentioned that public school works works well for uh, suburban districts. In your view, is that a function almost entirely due to the economic situation of students and their uh, families? Sure, and it's how 
you know, our schools are funded based on um, you know, the cost of real estate. So if you live in a wealthy district, you're going to have higher per pupil expenditures. You know, you're going to have more money than if you live in a very impoverished district. And even if you live in an impoverished district and you have, you know, like there, this gets talked about a lot. Oh, but those districts do get a lot of money, but they have a level of need in terms of kids coming in as English language learners, you know, English as a second language, kids with lots of learning needs, lots of special education needs. So there should be quadruple the money for those communities. Um, and, you know, I think right now in this country, if you live in a wealthy zip code, for the most part, you're going to do well in school. So does it mean you're smarter if you're wealthy? Of course not. But we do not have an equal playing field. And, you know, we don't recognize that those who grow up in less resourced communities are just starting out so disadvantaged. I mean, I I read this New York Times article. I want to I'm going to shuffle for a second just cuz I want to read you this New York Times quote. And this came out in the New York Times 2017 March. For young people with college educated parents, the path to higher education may be stressful, but there is a roadmap. If their standardized test scores are too low, they can pay for a prep course. If their essay is lackluster, they can hire a writing coach. No one will be the wiser. If they can't decide which college is the best fit, they can visit. When they are tempted to give up, their parents will push them on. So that's the end of that little quote. And what I'm saying in this book, when grid isn't enough, few of those supports are in place for low income or first generation college students. And that is really not okay. So that's what I'm writing about. And that's what I'm, you know, what I care really deeply about, you know, both your listeners and, and the society at large to understand you can't just say, of course, if you don't work hard, if you don't show any individual initiative, dedication, perseverance, you will never get ahead. But that is not enough, given the deep, deep inequities that we have developed in our society. When it comes to financing public education, you don't just say, well, and I could be, so please correct me if I'm wrong here, but but I wasn't given the impression that you're saying just, you know, throw more money in the system. We're just so grossly underfunded. Money is the answer. It's also a reallocation issue as well as needing more money. So on the front of how we're using our resources, and you alluded to this, I think, in the past with the actual stu uh, adult to student ratio in schools, and then what you actually see in classrooms, what do you think some of our allocation issues are and how can we fix them? Yeah. Well, I think there's a way in which we, I, I actually think the whole way we run our schools is deeply broken. So I think this idea that one principal can ever be both a manager and an instructional leader and a coach and the finance person 
And, you know, if you think about the job of a principal, no one in their right mind would do that. Oh, great. I'm in an ed leadership program in the very end, so. Well, you know all of the standards you have to be great at, and it's kind of impossible. So I, I think the idea of like a management team is a much better idea. I would sort of get rid of the word principal or head, you know, I might go back to the word head teacher and you have a head teacher. This is what I think the charters have done very well is sort of taught us that you don't, you can have a different way of organizing your schools. So you can have an operations person, even in elementary schools, you can have a principal, you can have someone who's really working on professional development. Um, so I think the job that we have created for principal is just grotesque and way too big, especially if you're in a large secondary school. It's like ridiculous and no one can do that well. So money is important there because you need more people to do those very complicated tasks. Then next I'd say money's important because in some of our large high schools, you have one counselor for 300 mm. kids. Yeah. So how are kids, and those are probably good numbers, but you, you need to have one counselor for a number of kids where it's reasonable so you can really help, help those kids make choices about after secondary school, what are you going to do? And then the same as I said about teachers. I don't think teachers should be teaching more than 80 kids. And I think to get to that number, you need more adults. So, so money really does matter. And then I, I think given that kids and families are now coming to school with so many more complex issues, you know, I, I think autism is so much more of an issue today than it was. I don't even think I knew the word autism when I started 40 years ago. Uh, we really need more people who are really trained in social emotional wellness so that our teachers understand how to work with kids that may have some really serious issues um, and you know may not be able to do academic work right away. And that's when I go back again to for lots of kids who have, you know, social emotional issues, for them to be able to make and do and paint and sing and do yoga or, you know, whatever kind of wellness activities, these are really important things that we have to embrace in our schools. And you go into any well-functioning, well-financed private school, and I've been in Watts, and you see the kinds of buildings that kids are learning in, the kinds of classrooms. It's beautiful. Too many of our public schools are downright ugly. Oh, and, yes. uh, you know, aesthetics matter. How, you know, whether there's light in a classroom, whether there's different seating. You know, I, I think today we understand so much about how kids do learn. You know, we really do know. Um, you know, I was on a committee with the National Academy of Science, and we've now written two books about, you know, how people learn, and we know so much more about the brain, and yet you look at our schools, and there's this, you know, awful, Carol Dweck says this, if you came back to a hospital, you know, you were born 100 years ago, and you came back to a hospital, everything would be different, but if you were born 100 years ago, and you came back to a school, everything looks good. The school I work at is really 
absolutely amazing, but it's kind of known for being, I think, one of the ugliest on the outside school designs ever. Like, it's just this atrocious looking building. And so I'm on the playground one day, and this is kind of an old joke now for the school, but a student I hear over here turns to another student and goes, you know, our school really looks like a prison. And the student quickly replied, yes, but prisons have more windows. So they- Yeah, they, horrible. Yes. Right. They designed this concrete box with like very few windows. Great school though, but um, just not the nicest of buildings. But um, I definitely want to uh, ask you if there's if there's anything we haven't discussed that you want to uh, bring up. Definitely give you the last word. Let our listeners know where they can connect with you. And then if you uh, wanted to, you had alluded to uh, to it just a, a few minutes ago. If you wanted to read a, sh- a short selection, I think we still have time for that. Um, if that's something you want to do and give our listeners a taste. Yeah, I'd love to read about Kevin in the first chapter. I think um, probably take about three minutes. But, you know, listeners can get the book um, at a bookstore. Um, I'd love people to get it. I, I do like to tell people that all of the royalties for the book go back to the students at the Boston Arts Academy. Oh, wow. So it's important to me. You know, I give a check every time I get a check. You know, it's not big, but it's... Um, for their student activities fund. So that means something to me. So I'm not making money off of this. I just want people to know that. I want your listeners to know that. So I'll, I'll read from page 25, if that's okay. Oh, please, thank you. Okay, so this is, uh, I'm reading now. Uh, Kevin remembers being encouraged to dream big about college. He knew he was talented. He had excellent grades in both visual arts and academics. We had heard since we came here to BAA, Boston Arts Academy, as freshmen, even in freshman orientation, that we could all go to college. It was part of the curriculum. Kevin recalls the intensity of senior year with his peers. Classes revolved around writing essays and preparing portfolios, as well as practicing for interviews. Where are you applying? Is your portfolio finished? That's all we talked about. Everyone was going to go somewhere. In this case, the assumption was, There is a college for everyone. Kevin received a full scholarship to Mass College of Art and Design, a four-year public arts college, but he desperately wanted what he called, quote, the full college experience, end quote, of going away from home and being around a diverse mix of kids. I'd been doing art so intensely for four years in high school, I just wanted to see what else was out there. So instead of going to Mass Art, where he had a full scholarship, He went to another state school, University of Massachusetts in Dartmouth, where he would need financial aid. I'm stopping reading for a second. I don't, in the book, name colleges um, very often. I sort of hide their names. But in this case, Kevin actually wanted me to name Mm. them. That's why these two are actually named. So I'm reading again. Pell Grants wouldn't cover the cost of in-state tuition with room and board. Qualifying for financial aid wasn't a problem for Kevin and he understood that he would have to repay some loans when he graduated. During freshman and sophomore year, Kevin had a great advisor who made sure that he did all of his financial aid paperwork on time. But junior year, he was assigned a new advisor in his major. That advisor didn't know Kevin well, and he wasn't as methodical about checking in with Kevin about issues such as financial aid deadlines. Kevin recalls when his life began to unravel. I was so busy at the end of sophomore year. I was working for the Unity House, that's for students of color, 
And I was performing and DJing all over to earn money for books and everything. I was also working 30 hours a week in the cafeteria. Of course, I had a full load of classes too. When he returned in September of his junior year, he discovered he didn't have housing. Alarm bells should have gone off. I should have realized right away something was wrong, but I just thought it was a housing thing and it would work out. Lots of my friends had housing issues. So I stayed on a friend's couch for September, waiting for housing to come through. That wasn't so unusual with my friends. But when I went to the housing office to find out when I'd get a room, they just laughed and they said I wasn't even enrolled. There was a hold on my account. I was so confused. How could that be? I was like big man on campus. Everyone knew me and loved me. I was involved in everything. Why would I have a hold? Too late, Kevin realized he had neglected to apply for financial aid for his junior year. He took out more loans to cover tuition. It was mid-October, and he was too embarrassed to tell his mother that he actually wasn't a student. She just wouldn't have understood. She had sacrificed her whole life for me to get here. He stayed involved with his college activities. He kept his on-campus job, and he even kept going to classes. But slowly, things began to catch up. And he realized that now he had all this debt and he didn't know what to do. He dropped out of college and he worked two jobs trying to pay off some of the loans, but he couldn't make much of a dent in the debt he was accumulating while also paying for rent and food. It felt like the Great Wall of China. The debt just went higher and higher with the interest. And at some point, I think I owed $42,000 and there was literally no way I could be paying that off and live. Kevin didn't want to acknowledge that his dreams of a college degree had vanished. He was working 40 hours a week cooking in a diner, also making money on the weekends performing and DJing, but he couldn't see how he'd ever be able to return to school. He knows he should have been responsible for understanding when and how to reapply for financial aid, but he also recognizes the role that his first advisor had played helping him keep track of the paperwork. I shouldn't have relied on my advisor, but you know, if you don't grow up knowing all about financial aid and the deadlines, and you don't have a parent to remind you, it's really important that someone in college can help with that. I'm not the only one who missed deadlines. Sometimes I think colleges should be measured on how many students actually graduate rather than how many enroll. And if a lot drop out, like what happened to me, maybe tuition and loans should be even less. Why isn't the college held responsible at all? So that's that story. Yeah. And I end with that question, you know, why indeed don't we hold colleges responsible for graduation rates? And how are those rates tied to money? Um, so that's from chapter two. And there's, you know, the stories sort of are very poignant. Some are not quite so difficult, but many are. Um, and I think I try to point out in the book how deeply unfair this system is. You know, the next story in the book is about Ashley, who can't do the end run that so many kids in college do, which is to drop that hard science class and take it in the summer. She can't do that because her scholarship doesn't cover summer school. So she too ends up dropping out. And uh, lots of stories like that. Um, anyway. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I'm my my interest is uh, at maximally peaked here, so thank you much. You're welcome. 
Thanks for having me.